Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am here to talk about some of our philosophies when it comes to hiring. So this is going to be coming after our last episode, which is how we're running a remote company. And I'm going to talk about the segue, which is what that actually opens up to you from a hiring perspective. So what we were doing as far as running the business was pretty unique pre-COVID times, but it's almost as if, and uh, if you guys want to listen to our op episode with Brian Kennel, he had a fantastic breakdown of how this is showing up on the ground level for law firms across the country. But basically, we have kind of had an acceleration of probably 10 or 20 years in technological development within the span of a couple of years with everything going with the pandemic. I think if you wanted to see the direction that things were going, remote was probably inevitable, but the whole situation we had with the pandemic really, really accelerated things. So that can be a disadvantage for a lot of firms because now you're competing globally or, well, nationally, most likely, or statewide if we're talking about attorneys that have a JD in the jurisdiction that you're in, but you are now technically competing with everybody else in your state, especially if we're talking about the talent with the people that value remote work. And that's something that's becoming more and more prevalent these days as millennials and Gen Z end up working in the workplace. So how do we take advantage of that? And that is to bring the fight right back to them. So if you are competing against firms that are statewide or nationwide, depending what kind of law you practice, you should be able to hire statewide or nationwide. And All this stuff boils down to basic economics at the end of the day. So I don't necessarily want to talk about abundance in this situation, but I do want to talk about avoiding scarcity. And I think a big part of what has been kind of flipped over on the law firm model is that if you had a situation where you were one of few employers in a certain geographic area and you had a newly minted JD that wanted to move for, you know, where their spouse wanted to live or where their family lived or or who named it. You had a lot of pressure, and that pressure has gone away with the opportunity for remote work. So similarly, you don't want to be beholden to a very small crop of people. And when you have the situation where you're not able to charge, we're not able to pay the highest salary and compete with some of the larger firms, which is a situation that a lot of the people that are growing a law firm end up facing, we got to make sure that we have as many opportunities as possible. Another story that I kind of want to bring into here is kind of an interesting perspective. And they were talking about, I forget where I heard this, but when you look at the crop of kids that ends up graduating from Harvard on a given year, they're obviously very, very talented people. But basically, they're able to select that group of kids from an enormous pool. So one of my favorite quotes is that quantity has a quality all its own. It isn't the process of applying to Harvard that makes anyone outstanding. But when you take the amount of applicants for the you know 2,000 spots or whatever from 2,000 up to 200,000, and that's how you get those crazy application acceptance rates that people always talk about, 
then you have a bigger pool of people to look at. So provided that you're interested in running remote business, and again, you have to be super careful. Obviously, if there's things that are required for somebody that has passed the bar in your state to do, you're limited to that state, or at least somebody who's passed the bar in that state. If you need somebody who's going to be going to court for you or doing stuff that's physical, you know, filing paperwork, that kind of thing. And again, I don't think you should be filing paperwork, but maybe going to court, for example, then obviously you're not going to be hiring somebody in, in Alaska or the Philippines, right? But within reason, if you're able to get somebody to do the work, the larger the geographic footprint that you can have, the more applicants that you can get in. And the more applicants that you can get in, it's not that process is going to make anyone that comes into your hiring funnel, so to speak, better, but it's more likely that you're going to have an extremely high quality person come through that. So basically the table stakes for the discussion to follow is I want you guys to think about how broad can you possibly go? And if you want to get super crazy with it, I'm not the only person that's talking about this. I know that there's been a huge upswing in people that are even hiring outside of the US for really important legal functions that people probably wouldn't have been thinking about outsourcing to. Um, and again, I don't really like the word outsourcing, but you know, offshoring maybe would be a better word for it. People would not be talking about this stuff five or 10 years ago. But again, COVID has changed a lot of things. Um, so anyways, we're, we're potentially targeting people on a, on a larger network. And basically, we have to kind of go with what can we do from there? I think about everything in terms of advertising, which probably shouldn't come as a surprise. But when we talk about the actual job posting, if you have a well-written job posting, the ability to get way more clients, or sorry, <laughs> the ability to get far more applicants is a lot more likely. So we used to do a lot of hiring and we've actually kind of switched where we end up doing these recently, but we used to have these job postings on Indeed. And we really took a lot of effort into making sure that message in the offer was super, super compelling. So it wasn't out of the question for us to spend $50, $60 on Indeed and get like, I'm not even kidding, 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 sometimes applicants to a position for a call center role. These days, we're doing a lot more advertising directly on Facebook, but you know we're able to get a really, really crazy pull in terms of like the ads that we're doing. We're getting applications for 50 cents, so we can run an ad for 20, 50 bucks a day, get a couple hundred applicants, no problem. Now, what this allows you to do is we're able to filter people more aggressively. This kind of goes back into a concept that I've talked about on other podcasts in terms of the amount of friction, right? So compared to, you know, if you wanted to, you know, staple a flyer outside of your office and talk to whoever came in, if there ended up being five people after having that for a month, you can't really play hardball with those people, right? So, you know, if somebody's got like, you know, the crazy uh, thick accent or they're super rough around the edges, you think they're going to bite one of your client's heads off. You know, if it's down to a couple people and you got to fill the position for next week, you might make a decision that you're not super happy with a couple months from then, right? So how we're able to do that is that once we up the volume, we can have more and more levels of qualification that we and or hoops to jump through without fear of losing a person to hire for the position in the first place. So depending on the role, one of the first things I really recommend doing, and um, if it's anything client facing, I always recommend having somebody send a recording. So whether it's a video recording or a face recording, I need to know what the person sounds like if they sound personable. And again, some of the stuff that we do, uh, we always have calls going for, we always have hires going for our call center. 
So it's really important that these people not only have the hard to detect accents, but a neutral accent as well. When we're hiring US people for this even, like we can't have somebody that sounds like they have a crazy thick New York accent or a, you know, Alabama accent or you know, crazy California accent or any of that stuff too. Because if they're calling somebody else also in their country, it clearly sounds like it's somebody who doesn't belong. So we not only have to have, you know, no accents, gotta be a very neutral accent as well. So this is the kind of thing that we can put out there and a bunch of people won't do it. So not only are we testing for the accent, we're testing for the ability for the person to follow up on the first role. Now from there, we have, you know, there's a couple other steps that you can do. And basically as far as kind of the next process as well, I always try to have at least a two interview process. Typically it's going to be somebody who's going to be on the executive team. And I'll give an example. So when we were hiring a lot of the stuff for the ISA, I would actually do the first interview for a lot of these people. And my interview would be on culture fit and motivations. Um, One of my favorite questions to ask on these interviews is what drew you to the listing? And a follow-up question is, you know, did you take a look at our company? What do you think about our mission? And people who either didn't do the work for that or have kind of less than ideal reason for doing this stuff, then they're not even going to make it through to the next interview. The next interview is usually a skills interview. And I actually would have the hiring manager doing that in most instances. And at the end of the day, too, if you're a solo, then you don't necessarily have to do two interviews with yourself. That might seem like a little bit overdone. But uh, if you have, for example, we've worked with firms that had, you know, super, super small solo plus. And if it was somebody that was going to be helping the office manager, for example, the office manager would be conducting the follow-up interview because at the end of the day, the office manager is the person who has to pick up that person's mess (laughs) if it ends up not doing it. And one last thing to do, then this has just kind of always been a personal preference of mine. Like I let the person who's responsible for dealing with the individual that's being hired be the final say. But at the end of the day, the bigger pool that you can draw from, the higher response the ad that you're putting out for your listing is going to get, the more levels of hoops that you can have people jump through. And I'm sure if you guys have ever been through, you know, big lot hiring process, you have situations where, you know, you're chasing the brass ring, you might have five, six interviews over the course of months, but when it's worth it at the end of the day, that's something that you're happy to go through. And if not, somebody else is right. So that's kind of one thing to keep in mind. We are absolutely in a new world as far as hiring stuff. And the faster that you can get acclimated to it, the faster you're going to be able to hire in a way that's going to be cost effective and ultimately move your business forward. So just wanted to get some thoughts out on that. I'm Jan Roos, and I will see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode. 